Well, uh, if you've been with us for a while, uh, like the last 19 months, we've been in the gospel according to John. And the Lord willing, unless I get long-winded, which I never do, right, guys? Yeah, I know. Uh, the Lord willing, we'll finish the gospel of John this morning. We're in John chapter 21. What a great journey it's been. I was just doing some review looking back and and don't worry, I'm not going to review the whole thing again. We did that not long ago. But uh, just looking at this marvelous piece of, of divine literature, this, this inspired book uh, revealing the person, the work of Jesus. And as we've been going along, it, what we looked at it at the end of chapter 20, John actually closes the, the, the book. He closes his writing and, and he gives the, the purpose for it that you might believe and which we've seen over and over and over again throughout this gospel. And so he closes it. And then chapter 21, it's, it's no less important. It's no, no less inspired. It's no less part of the word of God, but it was very, probably, likely, written afterward, written later at some point, and he appends it on, he adds it on. It's an epilogue uh, to the to the to his writing. And, and so what we'll look at this morning as we wrap up is we're going to go from the southern part of the nation, specifically in Jerusalem, and we're going to go up to the northern part of Israel and go up to Galilee. The Galilee region was the northerly most of the provinces of Israel in the first century. There was Judea, the southern province. There was the middle province, Samaria. And then the northern one, Galilee, where the Sea of, of Tiberias is what it's called, where the Sea of Galilee is located. And that's where these guys were from. Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Uh, the other guys that are with him, there's there's... Probably seven, but it could be eight, because John, if you notice in this gospel, he always kind of steers away from identifying himself. He does that here, too, uh, and he names names here. But anyway, they go up to the northern part of the country. Now, there's some debate among scholars, and, and I'm really not going to weigh in on either side, as to whether the guy should have been here. We'll talk about that. Jesus told them, to tarry here or stay here in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father comes, speaking of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit would be given. Matthew says that they were told to go to Galilee after the resurrection. And so how do you reconcile that? I, both are very easily reconciled. that They happened at different times. It doesn't change the fact that Peter's making a career choice that's not in his best interest or in the kingdom's best interest here, and we're going to talk about that. So as we look at this, they're likely in a little town called Capernaum uh, on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. That's where uh, Peter and James and John lived. They had a fishing business there. There's, they were likely partners. We don't know that for sure, but they were at least neighbors, knew each other well. And then some of the other guys were from Bethsaida, which is not too far off, and they came down and fished in the Sea of Galilee as well. So they had traveled up to familiar territory, and, and they had made this trip, and they're in uh, Capernaum and looking at what is it that Jesus wants us to do now. So as we look at this, we're going to see that they had the Holy Spirit's indwelling already. Remember in John chapter 20, this is Jesus breathed upon them. We took a look at that, looked at the recreative force of Christ in the sense of it, 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 we linked back to Genesis when God breathed life 
into man, into the very first man. And that when Jesus breathed on the men, he was breathing life into them. The first thing he does coming out of that grave was to regenerate people, to make them spiritually alive, which had not happened since Adam fell. And when Adam was created in perfect communion with God, that when he fell, that communion was broken. That fellowship with God was broken. And now Jesus restoring that, coming out of the resurrection, uh, one of the first things he does. But one of the things that's interesting about that is that if we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, and if you are a believer in Christ, the person in the work of Christ, and you've turned from the old life and embraced him, then you do have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Does that mean that everything you do is going to be in perfect accord with his will? Probably not. Uh, we Sometimes we just get out there doing our own thing, and, and we can even call it something that God wants us to do. But until he brings that correction, uh, we're sort of on our own. But we're going to look at that, and I believe that's an aspect of the story here in John chapter 21 uh, this morning. So what he's doing with these guys is, is Jesus. They find comfort in familiar surroundings. Uh, amen, I do. I We took a couple of days away this last week, and it was really nice to get home, get into my own bed again. I mean, it was just comfortable. It was familiar to be home and, and to just go through my routine, even though we had an enjoyable time away. So these guys, they've been in Jerusalem. They have not been in Galilee since John chapter 7. I mean, this is a long time back. That, that in chapter 7 is the last time in the Gospel of John that they're reported to be in the northern part of the country. Uh, the other Gospels have him traveling back and forth some, so we don't know exactly how long it had been, but it had been some time. So in verse 1, uh, in John 21, we read, After these things, after what things? After the resurrection and Jesus appearing to them twice, remember? And, and then appearing to Thomas the second time. Uh, eight days after the resurrection, after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. That's synonymous with the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it's also called the Sea of Gennesaret. Uh, and in this way, he showed himself. Verse 2, Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana. Cana's where they had the wedding, remember? It's about eight miles northwest of Nazareth. Uh, Tom, or Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that, that would be James and John, and the two others of his disciples were together. So probably seven, like I said. So the seven guys here, uh, two of them are unnamed. John probably is one of them, and we don't know who the other one is. Uh, interesting, uh, reading up and studying on this, uh, there's a lot of conjecture out there. We're going to talk about conjecture this morning, too. Have a little fun with it. But... Um, uh, there, there's all kinds of opinions about this. It's like when God doesn't fill in the blanks, sometimes he just doesn't fill in the blanks. And and we do well to just take the simplest interpretation that probably John was one and one of the other disciples. He doesn't play an active role in the story, so it wasn't important for John to put his name down. Got to realize, too, that between the resurrection and the time when Jesus would ascend, it would be just under six weeks, 40 days. And so these guys, they head up there. Uh, as I mentioned, they could easily have met with Jesus in Jerusalem, or they could have met with him afterwards. The timeline's not clear here. Uh, but I don't have any problem. I, I've read some stuff that over the years that, that people, they go, aha, 
He said, stay in Jerusalem. And, Aha! He said, go to Galilee. And so therefore the Bible's no good. It's like, no, stop. It, from John's perspective, this is how things are taking place. And we've looked at, especially when we looked at how he wrapped up chapter 20, he said he did so many other things. And we'll look at that in 21 as well, that, that he did a, a lot of other things that are not written in this. And so John is very selective in his writing. That he doesn't put Jerusalem there doesn't mean that it didn't happen. So uh, in the six weeks, there would have been a lot of time, a lot of time, and Jesus is instructing his men. He opens their hearts and their minds to understand the scriptures. Remember, they're in the upper room right after he resurrected. And so he's spending time pouring into his men during this 40 days that he was here on the earth after he resurrected, before he ascended into heaven. Verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we're going with you also. So they went out and they immediately got into the boat. And that, and that night they caught nothing. So they go out, they immediately get into a boat. That shows me that they're probably at Capernaum because that's where their boat would be parked. They Again, they had left the nets, left the boats. And, and when Jesus had called them, he had said, follow me and I'll show you. I'll teach you to be fishers of men. So here they're in Capernaum. They go, they get out in the boats and they go. And, and you know, I just... I can't help but look at this and see this is the the fruit of self-effort. I really believe that when Peter said, I'm going fishing, that he wasn't talking about recreation like we would if if I said, well, I'm going to go fishing. This is a career choice for Peter. He was saying, you know what? I'm going back to the nets. I'm tired of waiting for Jesus. He's not going to say that, but we often act in ways we're not going to state He's tired of waiting for Jesus. You know, I, this whole thing just totally set my life on uh, upside down. And, and you know, I'm, I just, I'm hearing these familiar surroundings and I'm, I'm enjoying being with you guys and I'm just going to go fishing. What Peter's doing here is he's exercising a form of leadership, but it's not one that God would honor. And so the other guys says, the other guys, yeah, we're going to go too. Not a great start here. And so they went out, they got in the boat, and they don't catch anything. I got a couple of slides here. I want to talk to you about these boats, these first century boats. This is a, a it's called the the Jesus boat. It's in Israel, and it's at a town called Genesar. Now, this is right near Magdala, which probably doesn't mean anything to most of you, but it's on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, back in 1986, there were some people going along at the sea, and it was a low level for the Sea of Galilee, which is, it's a lake. It's, I don't know, a third of the size of, of like Lake Tahoe. Uh, it's not a huge lake. It's a, it's a big lake, but it's not huge, and it's not a sea. It's not like salt water. This is an inland lake. And so they were going along, and they found this wood sticking up out of the mud, and it alerted the archaeologists and all of that. They went and they began to dig this thing out. And they had a real problem with it because as they dug it out, it disintegrated. As soon as the air started to expose, or this wood was exposed to the, to the air, it broke down. And so they had this whole thing where they actually dug down and they encapsulated this whole boat in foam. And then they brought it out and they were able to treat it and to preserve it somehow. And I don't know how they did it. 
but it was a, a typical first century. They were able to locate it in the first century. So next slide. It was about 27 feet long, and the beam, which is the width across the boat, was about seven and a half feet. So, and this is an artist's rendition of a first century boat, very similar to what we see with the photograph of the remains of, of the boat that's there. And I just show you that just so that you guys know, I, I like to kind of locate where these things are physically so that, you know, for seven guys to be in a 27 foot long boat, it'd be a little crowded, uh, especially when they're all standing on one side because the net is full. We'll get to that in a minute. One of the things that's true, uh, I, I call it the perils of leadership. I look out at the church, and, and it's no secret, I believe that the church, and I don't mean our church, but the church in general is in trouble these days because there's very poor leadership being exercised in many aspects of the church. And what I mean by that is where people have made a, a departure from the word of God being lifted up from this being our source and gotten into all kinds of goofy doctrines, and, and the doctrines of men have crept in, and, and, and getting out there and, and preaching a social gospel where, you know, it's therapeutic. It come in and we'll give you a therapeutic, moralistic message where it's based on you, not based on him. And, and it, so one of the things that's true, I call it the perils of leadership. There are things that come at me all the time. You should see the mail I get. Uh, oh, pastor, you need to do this. Oh, pastor, you need to buy this book. Oh, hey, Pastor John, you need to take your church in this direction. And, and pray for me. Pray for me that I won't get off. And I welcome you telling me if you think I have. Well, to a point. Um, <laughs> but truly, we want to be as the Bereans there in Acts chapter 17. And and to search the scriptures to see if these things are so, because if this is not our standard for faith and practice, what is? Truly, what is? So Peter here, he's getting off just a little bit. Jesus had told him, look, on, with you guys, I'm gonna found, I'm gonna, I'm gonna build my church with you guys. He knew that these guys would be even having the Holy Spirit that they could get off and start going onto their own. And Peter, Again, this career choice he makes, the other guys, he's leading these guys right out of the will of God. And, and it reminded me, uh, this is an interesting thing. Years ago, uh, the Air Force Thunderbirds, you know, the stunt jets that they use, uh, they were practicing in the Nevada desert. Uh, and there was always a lead jet. The, the pilot, was, he was the lead pilot, and he set the formation. And these guys went into this big, long loop, and they came, and he misread his altimeter. And the pilots are trained, you never break formation. That's the big rule. You don't break formation. You don't ever break formation. And this guy came, and he misread his altimeter. Or I read later that they said that there was a problem with, with one of his uh, stabilizers. But uh, at any rate, for whatever reason... He flew that plane into the ground, and the three planes in formation with him all crashed in the same moment and destroyed all of their, I mean, all four pilots died instantly in that, in that deal because he made a mistake. And, and spiritually, folks, I'm not above making a mistake. Peter's not above making a mistake. Again, Jesus breathed on them the Holy Spirit. That didn't mean that he wasn't 
didn't have the capacity to get off. And, and so that's why here uh, it, we welcome you. We love you. We want to be able to grow in our relationship with him. And, and if this isn't the basis for that, then, then we've got troubles. That's why I'm so stubborn about the word of God. Something came to me yesterday uh, from a conversation about, well, we should go this way. And it was a well-intended comment. I said, well, no. First uh, Corinthians talks about that. And Paul's very clear. We're not going to do that. And I have to make those decisions based on the word of God. Like I said, pray for me. Uh, verse four here uh, says, but when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore and the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. It tells us further in, again, I read all kinds of things about this that, you know, they, they should have known it was Jesus and all of that. No, it tells us in the text that he was 300 or, you know, he was 200 cubits away. 200 cubits, a cubit's 18 inches roughly. It's, it was the span from the elbow to the wrist uh, or to the end of the hand. I, I have big arms, but anyway, it's longer cubits, right? And anyway, so, uh, but it was about a foot and a half. So that means that they were, that Jesus was standing about a football field, 300 feet away. So it's kind of hard to recognize people from that distance. I mean, if you're standing on one goalpost and you're talking to somebody at the other goalpost, and of course sound carries really easily over water, they'd clearly hear him but they wouldn't recognize him. And I'm not going to try to read into that. They didn't know that it was Jesus because they didn't know that it was Jesus. There is some truth, though, in understanding that he works in his supernatural with our natural. There is some place in understanding that uh, I've, I've talked before about, you know, I, I, I know people in my people in my family. It's like, OK, your life's you got this whole mess. Your life's a mess over here. You've got all this stuff going on and, and man, oh man, you're stressed out or you're, you know, you're just, things are going crazy. You're going wild and all that. And then you've got a whole stack of bad decisions over here. And, and sometimes folks, what God wants to do is to come to us in the midst of that and say, have you overlaid the two? And seeing that there are spiritual principles in play that you will reap what you have sown. And if you are making bad decisions and your life is a mess, that perhaps your life is just going on, you're going through trials because you're going through trials. I'm not trying to say that that's every time that's the case. But there are times where we do well to recognize that Jesus is doing, that God is doing what he can to get our attention through the things that we're enduring. And so understand that, that that's a spiritual principle. We will, he does come to us. He does allow us when we get out there, he, he will, he loves us and he wants to draw us back in. And sometimes uh, I love the saying that he'll, he'll shout as loudly as he needs to shout to get your attention because he loves us, not because he's out there to beat us up. So in verse five, we see that Jesus says to them, he says, children, do you have any food? And they answered him. And I have to add this. No, they fished all night. They're bummed out. They're fishermen. And, and so he, and Jesus comes to them. And, and I believe, I have to believe that Jesus is having just a little bit of fun with these guys at this point. I would be, and I'm not him, but, but it, you have any food? And, and, and no, there's a one word answer, right? Things aren't going well. How you doing? Fine. No, you're not. <laughs> but anyway, 
when he says children, it, it's, it, that was a common salutation back then. He, he's saying lads, or I might say, hey, guys, how's fishing? That would be how I would say that in today's vernacular. But back then he says, hey, children, do you have any food? Have you caught anything? Because that's what they're doing in this case. They're fishing for food. Uh, verse 6, and he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. So cast the net on the other side of the boat. That's an odd request. These guys are professional fishermen. They spent their life on this lake. Nobody had probably ever said, oh, well, fishing's lousy. Cast your net on the, like I said, this boat's seven and a half feet wide. And so move your net from here to here. And, and, but again, you see that the spiritual dynamic that's going on here is Jesus knew they hadn't caught anything when he asked them. It was important for him to have them tell him they hadn't caught anything. And then he gives divine instruction. This is where you're going to find it. This is a living parable, you guys. This is an illustration that Jesus is making about these guys' lives and ministry from here forward. You want to try to do it with self-effort? Good luck with that. And it's as though he's saying, good luck with that, gentlemen. You're not going to catch anything. But you want to do it with divinely inspired effort? You're still doing it, by the way. But now you're doing it. And and I love, Chuck Smith told a story. I've mentioned it before, but it's just such a great illustration. His little granddaughter, little three-year-old granddaughter, he was painting his bathroom one time. And she said, Grandpa, I want to paint too. And so uh, he took her, he got the can of paint out there, and he put her right in front of him, and then he reached down and he he reached, he put a brush in her hand, and then he reached one of his hands on, on this arm and one of his hands on this arm, and they, they dipped the brush in the paint, and she's just giggling with glee. She's just excited. And then he dipped the brush in the paint, and then they start painting the wall. And she got all done, and she was saying, I painted the bathroom. Yeah, but, you know, and that's just how it is. When God is empowering us, it's like, we're really inept. And I'm not trying to put you or me down, but when it comes to the things of God, carrying out the things that he's commissioned us to do, these guys don't have the ability to do it if it's not divinely inspired energy or divinely inspired stuff flowing into it. It's not going to produce much. Uh, and, and it's so important that we see our place in it. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. He wants to bless us. Praying with the worship team this morning, he said, Lord, what a privilege it is to serve you. What a privilege it is to be a part of what you want to accomplish in this old church. And it is. And I don't take that for granted. And as you serve the Lord, I encourage you, don't take service for granted. It's not something that now you've got your ministry and now, Wow, you know, you're some, but no, humility is absolutely essential, guys, that you realize that, you know what, you ain't going to catch any fish unless he's in it. And if he is, hold on. Uh, I love the old saying that when the Holy Spirit shows up the same time as you do, he can make you look pretty good. Good, you got that. The fruitlessness in self-effort that comes about is clear here. I'm going fishing. The blessings of a Christ-directed life and ministry is evident. Cast it on the other side. 
You know what? Sometimes it won't make sense. Remember when the Lord called us here, Stacy and I had sensed his calling for years back to, to take uh, the pastorate of an existing church in Oregon. And we wanted to be close to our parents and because they're getting older and we wanted to be able to, to you know, come alongside them. And, and I mean, I had a friend tell me, well, gee, you know, you, you say they're 11 miles from Newburgh. Yeah. But you could have said, well, God, you could have made it eight miles. It's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> but I mean, just, it's amazing how God worked. And I actually gave up praying for this church. It's like, well, maybe that was just me. And it wasn't the Lord just working. And I took a job, a corporate job in Colorado, was doing great, had, you know, the, in management and doing well and all. And I was there two months and the Lord called us here. It's like, okay, so Lord, you're going to move us to Northern Oregon from Northern California via Fort Collins, Colorado. That's just how he does it. And does it make sense? No. Did we want to respond to his call? Absolutely. There were so many things that, that God demonstrated to us that this is indeed where he wanted us. And, and it didn't make sense. And it doesn't have to make sense. So there's also there's safety in a multitude of counselors, we're told in the Proverbs. So you've got to be careful in weighing those things out, coming before the Lord, praying, saying, Lord, is this something you're doing? Is this, are you confirming this? And, and we had many confirmations. So that's true. So all of that's free. I'm just telling you that when we're in God's will, he may not always make sense to us when he tells us to cast on the other side of the boat. Again, the natural, supernatural. These guys still had to throw the net. They still had to man the boat. But now Jesus is in it. And the net is burgeoning. Verse 7, therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. Now, the disciple who Jesus loved, John, he, you guys know by now, He's using that of himself. And he always refers to himself in that way in this gospel. And, and, and I think it's great. I mean, in, he is, it's not like Jesus didn't love the other disciples. When I read it, it's like, oh, what about the other guys? No, it's not what John is doing. He's actually, he's in, in an attitude of humility. He's putting himself in a place where he's not even putting himself into where he's mentioning his name. And so he's saying that, uh, when he saw that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he had removed it for work and, and plunged into the sea. Now, Peter, John says, it's the Lord. And I can imagine that John was excited when he recognized, okay, no fish all night. Either the nets really snagged or hung up on the bottom or we got a lot of fish. And all we did was switch sides. This is, it's the Lord, and he and it dawns on him that this is something that's going on that Jesus is into. And and these guys had they'd walked with him for over three years, and by this time they would know that they never knew what Jesus was going to do next, and that very often it just kind of blew their socks off. They had no idea what was, and then all of a sudden it would dawn on them, and they would get with the program, kind of like us. Uh, when it says that that Peter put on his outer garment. What they had, they had an inner tunic and an outer tunic. And an inner tunic was probably, in this case, a loincloth. And it would just you know, cover up the guys. And, and, and 
they would be stripped for work out in the sun on the lake. It would be really warm in the sun. And so he put on his, he actually takes the time to put on his outer tunic, which again, he wants to be respectable and, and, you know, show up fully dressed. And he jumps into the sea. Now I have to wonder at this point, the last time that Jesus was outside the boat and Peter was inside the boat, Peter jumped out. And he actually started to walk on water. And I, I just, I, it doesn't say it, but in my mind, I look at this scene and I think, was Peter thinking, oh, this is going to be great. And I'm going to just walk right over to him. And he just steps out of the boat and goes straight down. <laughs> I don't know. I just know that this is Peter. Peter, Peter, Peter. Uh, the guy that would uh, go take action and then engage brain you know that that's just peter he's so impetuous he's but you know what this pure love for jesus he doesn't care about the water he doesn't care about there being a hundred yards between him and jesus all he knows is he's got to get to him as quickly as he possibly can and it's because he loved him and he knew that he was loved by him verse 8 the other disciples came in the little boat for they were not far from land but about 200 cubits again 300 feet dragging the net with fish uh, then as soon as they had come to land they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread i think this is remarkable it doesn't say that they found a new fire that jesus was kind of fanning and getting it going i i it reminds me back in genesis when god creates he creates a fully developed system. He creates not seeds that bear grass, but grass that bears seeds. You understand the distinction there? He creates trees that bear seeds, not seeds that bear trees. He's not waiting for everything to grow up. You know, how old was Adam when he was five minutes old? He was a fully developed man. He didn't start out as a baby and grow up. He's the only one that didn't. And so when Jesus creates a fire here, he doesn't say, well, I think I'll start a fire. I'll gather some wood and I'll do all of this. John is very clear to say that there are, this is a fire of coals. This would be an established fire. And Jesus just showed up. So again, employing the miraculous, Jesus just basically speaks this fire into existence. And on it are fish and he's got bread. Uh, I think it's just remarkable uh, that he does this. And he says to them in verse 10, Bring some of the fish which, fish which you have just caught as well. Uh, so again, it's a beautiful reminder of his supernatural blending with our natural and accomplishing his purposes, and it's for his glory. That's what he's doing with these guys. He doesn't need their fish, but he wants them to be a part of what he's created here, what he's doing. And so he's inviting them to contribute. Now, how did they catch the fish? Because he empowered them to do it. So... Was there really anything that they could provide? Yeah, they had to show up. And one of the things I love to tell people is, you know what? The only thing that God really requires of you, requires of me, is that we just show up. Uh, he can't hit a moving target real well, guys. And, and if you're struggling, if there are areas of your life that the Lord has his hand on, show up. Just And what that means is just simply be available to him to use, to yield to, to, to work in your heart, to pry your fingers off of an area of sin or whatever it is. Allow him to work. Show up. I'll guarantee you he will do the work. Guaranteed. 
But if you're struggling, or you're maybe in one of those times when, when we go, we all go through these times where it just doesn't seem that he's there. We go through these dry times. I would encourage you, lean in to what he has right in front of you. Lean into the work of the Holy Spirit. Lean into studying his word, allowing him to reveal himself and to speak to your heart. He will. He'll do it. He's faithful. Verse 11, Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to the land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Now, I want to talk to you guys for a minute about 153 fish. See if it slides there? Yeah. What is, I want to talk to you about the spiritual significance of 153 fish. There aren't any spiritually significant facts about 153 fish. These guys are fishermen. They like to count. And it's not just 153 fish, it's 153 big fish. And they want us to know that. John wants us to know that. They, I mean, they go from a one word answer, no, to we got 153 really big, I mean, the nets didn't tear it. I mean, these guys are excited. It's just part of the story. The first rule of hermeneutics, which is the science of Bible study, look for the simplest possible explanation and you won't get sidetracked with weird. I went online. Go Google. When you get home, if you've got nothing to do, like I know all of you, but go and, and, and type into Google 153 fish. Oh my goodness. There is so much weird stuff out there. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, it's 153 fish. Now, I did find one interesting fact. Next slide. And, and I, I'm, you can share this at parties, okay? This has no spiritual significance other than it's cool. If you take 153 and you go one times one times one, that's one, right? If you go five times five, that's 25 times five, that's 125, right? Okay, you go three times three is nine times three is 27. Add those up, you come up with 153. Isn't that amazing? <sighs> We're going to move on now. It was significant. It was a lot of fish. Uh, the size of fish that are in the Sea of Galilee was probably about 300 pounds of fish that these guys are hauling in, and they weren't accustomed to doing this. And so it was remarkable. And, and as John writing, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he just wants us to know it was a good day on the water, man. When Jesus showed up, things really started happening. And, you know, that's true. Like I said, when he shows up, these guys look pretty good. Verse 12, and Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? The first thing I look at this is Jesus' servant nature. Isn't it just like him? He knew these guys would be hungry. They fished all night. And he, and he makes breakfast for them. I think about the marriage supper of the Lamb where the first thing that's going to happen when we get to be with him, when we're with him in glory, is he's going to have this huge supper. And guess who's serving? Jesus. Yeah, that's what the Bible says. 
It's amazing. His servant nature is so clearly demonstrated. And he's out there saying, hey, guys, look at me. I'm God. <laughs> I made breakfast for you. Wink, wink. No, he's just doing it because it's who he is. And he wants to share his nature with us. Servant-heartedness, others-centeredness. It says none of the guys asked him. They, none of them dared to ask him. And, and, you know, again, just looking at the context, chapter and verse markings are added. It hasn't been that long since chapter 20 where Jesus resurrects. He shows up in the upper room and all the guys are scared to death. And they, no, we don't believe that you're Jesus. He died. Show us. Oh, oh, wounds. Oh, spear. Oh, and, and, and they go through that. Remember, we talked about that. They don't believe that it's him. He has to show that he is who he is. And then he goes through the whole thing all over again eight days later when Thomas shows up and oh, I'm not going to believe that. No, no, no. You're not going to trick me. I, no, he, I saw him dead. And, and oh, 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 my Lord and my God. So I think the only thing is indicated here in chapter 21. It says none of them dared to ask him. They're thinking, we're eh, good. I don't think we need to check and make sure it's him again. And so they are not going to even go there, probably feeling kind of sheepish because they had been so doubting and so reserved in their response when he first showed up. Verse 13, Now Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. I came across something that, that Charles Spurgeon wrote. I want to read it to you about what it would have been like while they had breakfast there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee that morning, the first time that they had spent an appreciable amount of time with Jesus after the resurrection, especially for Peter, after his denials, knowing that he had bailed on the Lord. And, and as he had his eyes, it says, tells us in one of the Gospels, not in John, but one of the other Gospels, that, that as he finished denying the Lord for the third time, that he locked eyes with Jesus. How sobering would that be? And then he broke that contact with running away, weeping, being broken. Spurgeon says this, he says, they ate the bread and the fish that morning, I doubt not, in silent self-humiliation. Peter looked with tears in his eyes at the fire of coals, remembering how he stood and warmed himself when he denied his master. Thomas stood there wondering that he should have dared to ask such proofs of a fact most clear. All of them felt that they could shrink into nothing in his divine presence since they had behaved so ill. Verse 14, now this is the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples and after, uh, after he was raised from the dead. So he had showed himself to, in, in other gospel accounts again. If you try to reconcile this, you'll see some inconsistencies. From John's perspective, John, this is the third time that he showed himself that John was aware of. And so, again, don't get tripped up on that. Uh, verse 15, so then when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, or Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar is the uh, Aramaic for son of. Uh, ben is the Jewish, the Hebrew. But he says, Simon Bar-Jonah. Do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
And he said to him, feed my lambs. More than these. Now, there, I'm going to give you a couple of plausible uh, answers to what that could indicate. John doesn't tell us what these is. Okay? And, and so it could be the the fish, the nets, the boats. It could be, do you love me more than these? And that's a plausible explanation. Do you love me more than your fishing business, Pete? And, and, and many believe that. It could also be because in Matthew and Mark, when Jesus had said, look, I'm going away and you can't come. I'm, he's, he said, you guys are going to bail on me. You're going to, you're going to leave. And I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he said. And he said, you're going to be stumbled. And Peter's response was, if all of these other guys stumble, I'm a cut above Jesus. I'll never stumble. Now, these guys will leave, but not me. Uh-uh, no, 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 no. And I believe that if I was one of the other guys, you know, the Bible doesn't tell us how they looked at each other. I'd have probably given Peter a smirk, like, what are you? Mr. Big Shot, you know, what? what's going on here? And so there's this interaction that had taken place, and I believe that there was a division among his men. Because Jesus or Peter had asserted very clearly that he was not going to be like the other ones. And here he is staring at the fire as Jesus asked him, do you love me more than these? Was he talking about his men? You love me more than these guys? Yeah, you told me you did, but we know how that turned out. Don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Both explanations are plausible. Both fit the text and the context. Take your pick. But he says, do you love me? There are four Greek words in in Koine Greek, in the ancient Greek language for love. Uh, Two are found in the New Testament. Two are not. Uh, One, the word eros, is physical love. It's it's that attraction, and when it's in the proper, it's, it's channeled properly. It's not a bad thing. It's something that God built into us to be exercised in marriage, and it's talking about physical attraction to, to your to your mate, to your spouse, and, and yet that had been so debased by the time the writers wrote the New Testament because they lived in a culture that just promoted. Uh, sexual perversion. And it was so debased that none of the writers in the New Testament use the word eros. Uh, it is in the Old Testament, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's in a lot of places. Uh, one of the primary places is in the book of Hosea, where Hosea is married to a woman who is going after eros in that sense, Gomer, when she is behaving really badly sexually. And so that's one. It's not in the New Testament. I don't really look at it uh, at that. In, it's Essentially, it would be what would be called unbridled lust. The, the Bible talks about unbridled lust in the New Testament, and that would be a reference to eros. It's not using that word, but that's what it's talking about. The second Greek word is storge. And, and again, this is not used in the New Testament, but it was very common in their day, and that was a family love. That's That's the... I love you. 
you know, and not not just even when we're exasperated, but the kind of love that we have as for family. And it's a, there's a special kind of love that we have. And that's storge. The third one is philia or phileo. It's where we get the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Uh, and what it is, is it's a fond affection. It's a brotherly or warm affection that's shared between friends. It's not a family love, but it is a warm, it's a friendship kind of a love. And it's an affection. The, the fourth is agape or agapeo, which is used here as well. Uh, and it's a deep sacrificial love. Interesting, if you look at them, at the nature excuse me, of these words, eros is directed towards my gratification. Eros is self-gratifying. Eros is focused on me, on my needs. Phileo is a mutual love. It's a reciprocal love. I love you, you love me. You know, and it's a, that's how it's used. That's what a brotherly love is. Agape is not focused on me. It's not reciprocal. It's focused on you. And when we talk about the agape love of God, it is a love that is sacrificial by its very nature. It is a love that says it's all about you and your well-being and your good, regardless of the personal cost to me. It's agape. That's the kind of love that God has for us. That's the kind of love when the Bible says that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts, that God's will is for us to have for others. As he works in me and he works through me, the fruit of his spirit is love, agape. And it is a very, very important. It's not warm fuzzies, guys. It's not warm fuzzies. It's a very important, very critical part of being his child, of him forming Christ in me, of learning to think more like Jesus. It's not just being nice. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be nice. I don't want anybody getting cranky here. But very often Christians think, well, God's nice and I'm nice, so we need to be nice to each other because after all, we're at church and this is nice. It goes so much deeper than that. It says, what is in your best interest? How can I bless you? I don't care. What is going to elevate you? This is the essence of what Jesus talked about in chapter 13 when he, in the upper room, when he wrapped himself with a towel and he went and he washed all of his disciples' feet. He was demonstrating that's what agape would look like in practice. It's having an others-centered heart. Because by nature, we have self-centered heart hearts. And he wants to form Christ in us. And that's part of what sets us apart. That's why he said there is is so important, church, that you love one another, not because you're doing everything right, not because I agree with everything you say or you think or you feel, but because Christ in me compels me to love you that way. And I'm not, I'm going to go, yeah, I'm going to be nice, but I'm going to go far beyond being nice. When Jesus says to Peter, he says to Peter, Peter, do you agape me? Peter's response is, well, yes, Lord. I phileo you. I have a, 
I have a brotherly affection. I, I have a tenderness towards you, Lord. But that's not what Jesus asked. He says, feed my lambs. When he says, feed my lambs, ah, Oregon, runny nose. We took our grandkids to Doug and Karen's place a couple weeks back. And all the spring lambs were out there skipping around and jumping around and all of that. And and, and I just, I, I was, our, our grandkids were just having a blast. And I something I noted, I, I was thinking about lambs. Why does Jesus use the word lambs here? Because that lamb is so vulnerable and it is so innocent and it is, I mean, when he talks to Peter about feed my lambs, what he's saying to him is there are going to be people that come into this spiritual existence called being born again of the spirit. And they're not going to know nothing about nothing. They're going to be kind of like lambs. And I want you to feed them. I want you to nurture them spiritually. I want you to come alongside and pour into them. And, and, and at some point, that lamb will become a sheep, but he doesn't start there. He starts with, feed my lambs, Peter. I want you to protect them. I want you to, to come alongside. I want you to pour into these, these, these people that are just coming into a relationship with God or perhaps have not walked with God for long. And, and I want you to graciously come alongside. The Greek word is bosco, and it means to cause to eat, to pasture. I want you to pasture my lambs, and everything that a shepherd does is, is, is included in that. Verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, Simon bore Jonah, do you love me? Do you agape me? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I Phileo, you. Rendered the same in English, but totally different words with very different meanings. And he said to him, tend my sheep. Interesting. The word tend there is the same word that's used in Ephesians for pastor. It's the word poimen. What he's saying is I want you to shepherd my sheep. I, yeah, I want you to feed my lambs. And then I want you to shepherd my sheep. I want you to be fully committed to their good. You can't do that with phileo, folks. You have to do it with agave. It has to be God's love. Or, or it's just not going to happen. It's just not going to work. And so he comes to Peter a second time and says, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter says, well, I, I, I'm really fond of you, Jesus. And I can't help but think that Peter, knowing how he had strutted his stuff, and man, oh man, I'm there, Jesus. Everybody else will bail in. You know, I never will. I'll go with you to the death. And here, knowing his own failure, and Jesus, by the way, is restoring Peter in these, in this passage, that Peter would have been aware of his own inadequacy, of his own good intentions, but personally falling short. And perhaps he was fearful of saying, 
Well, of course, Lord, I agape you because there wasn't really a lot behind his words at this point. Because he had not loved sacrificially. He, and, and these guys wouldn't have the capacity for that uh, fully until the Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. The promise of the Father. So he says, tend my sheep, poimen, under shepherd my sheep. And, and that word is under shepherd. Interesting, when the chief shepherd appears, uh, the Bible talks about the chief shepherd, that word is archpoimen. That means the over-shepherd. And Jesus is the over-shepherd. I, as an under-shepherd, as a pastor, am never far from the realization and the knowledge that he's the great shepherd. He's the archpoimen. And the best I could possibly hope to do is to carry out his wishes with his flock. I love what I heard one guy say one time. He says, you know, in Romans 9, it talks about God being the potter and that, that we're all lumps of clay. And the best I can hope for, the absolute best I can hope for, and you too, is that I could be a lump of clay that is called by God to go around to other lumps of clay and tell them what the potter's like. That's really it. Uh, and yet this is what he's commissioning Peter. He's also setting a pattern for his church because he knows that Peter will be a pillar in his church, not because of anything Peter brought to the table, but because of what he was going to be empowering, anointing, and, and causing Peter to do. And he knew that Peter would never be able to carry this off unless he was walking in agape. Verse 17, and he said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love, do you phileo me? Now Jesus lowers to Peter's level. He says, Peter, do you have a kind affection for me? Not do you have a sacrificial love for me? And Peter was grieved, understandably. The wordplay was not lost on him. It's lost on us in the English. This is just a poor translation when they use the word love for each one of these because it really, and the only way that this you can unpack this passage for it to make sense is if you use the original language in it and you understand that he says, Peter, do you agape me? No, well, Lord, do you know I phileo you? Uh, again, do you agape me? No, well, Lord, I have a fond affection for you. I phileo you. And then Jesus coming back to Peter saying, do you phileo me, Peter? Do you have a kind affection for me? And Peter's grieved. Because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. And you know that I phileo you, that I love you. And Peter was sincere. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. He's trying to get Peter to understand that he must love Jesus selflessly, unconditionally, in order to be the leader that God was calling Peter to be. No, he wasn't the first pope. Yes, he would be absolutely instrumental in this thing called the church going forward from here. And it would be at great personal expense. Part of the program, folks, walking with the Lord very often comes at personal expense. Get over yourself if you think that it shouldn't be that way. And I, and I don't mean that harshly, but I mean truly. Sometimes things come into our lives and... We don't get it. We don't understand it. And the Lord, it's not in the contract that we understand. It's in the contract that we obey, that we simply trust him and we obey. And, and agape, walking in agape, walking it out in our lives is not going to mean that it's a nice, easy road. See that in a minute here. 
Um, I don't think Peter ever forgot this. In 1 Peter 5, um, I'll try to finish up here. Um, 1 Peter 5, now this is a passage that's very near to my heart. When I was ordained into the pastor in 1994, uh, I sought the Lord, I mean, because like it kind of freaked me out. I, I, it had been a few years since I'd gone to Bible college, and you know, I was just serving the Lord, and whatever he wanted me to do was fine. I don't really care. And, and um some guys that were identifying pastoral giftings, you know, ordained me. And, but it, it really kind of tripped my trigger. I was like, well, what does this mean? Do I need to change? What do I need to do? I mean, you, now I'm a pastor. What does that mean? And the Lord directed me to first Peter five. And he said, this is what I want from you. And it's not just for me. It's for you. It's his word. Uh, verses one through four, Peter says this. And now this is Peter on the other end of his life with decades now of experience shepherding the flock, doing what Jesus had commissioned him to do here, as Jesus was not only pardoning him, not only uh, restoring him, but commissioning him. Peter, with so much wisdom and so much spiritual insight, writes this. He says, the elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, past tense, I saw this stuff with my own eyes and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Future tense. Can't wait. That's our hope. He says, shepherd, poimen, the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers. Present tense. Very important. And then Peter lists four things here in first Peter five. He says, not by compulsion, but willingly. That's the first one. He does these contrasts. It's, it's not about lording it other pe- over other people's faith. It's not about, you know, I have to do this grudgingly. Okay, fine. You know, no, that's not it. This is not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Eh, don't even, I, I, don't, I don't even know what people give in this church. I don't care. That's between you and the Lord. And it's an area of obedience that if you need to tighten up on, you better seek him on that. Don't ask me. <laughs> I don't know. But my point is, this is not for dishonest gain. I'm not in this for the money. If I were in it for the money, I wouldn't be here. Um, I don't mean that. I just, I, what I'm saying is that that's just, that's just, it's just not part of it. All I want to do is be able to support my family, pay my bills. This is not for dishonest gain, but eagerly to, to want to, to, I can't wait. I mean, it's a privilege, like I said, to serve the Lord, not as being lords over those entrusted to you. You know, oh, hey, you know, you better get your act together. You know, no, no, no. When I, the first, when I was brought onto the board of elders in the little church, Calvary Chapel, Gridley, way back, I think it was 1987 or 88, I don't remember, years before I was ordained, uh, the pastor, Bob, he got, he's this little guy that, and just loved him, was discipled by him for 30 years. What a blessing. And he's with the Lord now. And, but, he sat me down here. I was at, yeah, at that point I was taller. It's probably about six, three, six, one and a half now. But so I'm this big guy and he's this littler guy. But I mean, he came with like the spirit of Nehemiah or something. I mean, he's just, and he put his finger out and he literally poked me in the chest. And I'm like, oh, you're serious. And he said, I want to tell you something. You're going to be an elder in this church. You better realize something right now. These are God's sheep. They're not your sheep. You leave them alone. You pray for them. 
you love them, and you let God do the changing in their hearts. It is not up to you. And I, all I could do is kind of squeak out, yes, sir. <laughs> got it. That was some of the best advice I ever got pastorally. It's a privilege. I love you guys. I truly love this church, love the people here. And I, I would never want to lord it over your faith. It, I want to come alongside as the Lord leads and as you request or whatever. But yeah, I want to be available. You're not my sheep. You're his. And God's told me to protect and to, to, to pour into and to do these things that he's sharing with Peter here. But it's not to lord it over your faith. That's between you and the Lord. Your growth is between you and the Lord because we're all growing. He says, and be an example to the flock, the fourth thing he says. And when the chief shepherd, the archpoiman, appears, you'll receive a crown of glory that does not fade away. Oh, how I want to hear those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in the joy of the Lord. I, 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 and I pray that's the case. And not because of self-effort, because of simply just carrying out what he's telling me to do. Verse 18, most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you, were, you girded yourself and walked where you wish. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you don't wish. What he's essentially saying to Peter is, you want your plan? Good luck with that. How's fishing? Catch anything? No. Or do you want my plan? Put your net on the other side of the boat. Let me show you what I can do through you. And folks, maybe the Lord is telling you this morning to put your net on the other side of the boat because what you're doing isn't working. It's all about being sold out wall to wall for Jesus Christ. It's all about I must decrease that he must increase in my life. If the Lord's speaking to your heart this morning, please respond to him in faith. Say, Lord, am I? Since he spoke this, verse 19, signifying by what death he would glorify God. Wait a minute. By what death he would glorify God? Well, I would think, I mean, I was watching TV the other day and that evangelist said that I could glorify God by giving him money and by my... No. I'll tell you what. There's an Americanized version of the gospel out there that stinks. It's about glorifying God. And he does love you. He loved these guys and he had plans for their lives. And, and yes, they would be fruitful. And John would be the only one that wouldn't die a violent death for his testimony of Christ. Uh, I, I almost, when I got to this passage, I went and I looked at the, the 23, I think it were, Coptic Christians, the Egyptian Christians that they lined up and executed that ISIS did. I thought, you know, I don't want to be sowing your face with the people on Sunday, but I was thinking, these guys didn't believe a prosperity gospel. These guys lived where the rubber met the road. And then I'm not saying that we're all going to die for Christ. That's weird. But it is about living for him. It is about living for him and, and, and saying, you know, I don't want the American gospel. I want Jesus. I don't want to just be nice. I want to be fruitful. I don't want my agenda for my life comfortable as that might be. 
but I want what his agenda for my life is. And that's the challenge that Jesus is putting before Peter right now. He says this, it says that when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. He didn't say, chart your own course, figure it out, Pete. He didn't say, go ahead, go back to the boats, have your own way. He didn't say, live for your own interests and your own pleasures. He said, follow me, period, end of story. And he ends his dialogue with Peter the way he began it three plus years before. In Matthew 4, 19, it says, Jesus said to him, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. I can't help but think that as Peter is standing there next to this fire and Jesus is talking right to him, that he's going back in his mind to very familiar words as he stood at that lake and God had called him away from the nets and said, no, it's not about that. Don't try to go back, Pete. It's not going to work for you. I've just showed you it's not going to work for you unless I'm in it. And I'm not in that. I want you to follow me. Good advice. Good advice for all of us. I'm going to try to cover five more verses here. So I really want to finish this book this morning because I want to go into, oh, I'm not going to tell you where I'm going next. Um, but you'll we'll have to come next Sunday. Verse 20, then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following. I laugh about this. It's like, all right, Peter turns around. Jesus just tells him, you're going to die. People are going to gird you. You're going to take you where you don't want to go. You're going to stretch out your hands. They're going to cuff you or tie you up or whatever. And you're going to die for me. And you're going to glorify me in your death. And then Peter goes, hey, that didn't sound too good. What about him? And, and he points to John and, and he says, <laughs> he says that he turns around to the disciple whom Jesus loved. Obviously, that's John. But John says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following. Jesus had just told Peter, follow me. And John's saying, I'm already following. So, I, I mean, I read that and I, it just cracks me up. I think John just likes to insert these little things in here. Like when he got to the tomb first, you know, and all that. Uh, it says that he also leaned on his breast to supper and said, Lord, who's, he's, who's the one who betrays you? He's clearly referring to himself. Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Peter, Peter, Peter. <laughs> Verse 22, and Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Some of the best advice you could ever get. It's not, a, and it's not from me. It's from him. What is it to you, what I have to do with him? You guys have heard me, those of you that have been around for a while, I've heard me exhort in this church, and I'll exhort again. Stop trying to figure out what God's will is for the person sitting next to you, especially if that's your spouse bad idea. Doesn't work. Understand the Lord's will for you and then do it. We get caught up sometimes, and I'm guilty of this with Stace, and she loves me anyway, which blows me away. But we get caught up in thinking, well, you know, you really need to get your act together in this area. Those are not good words between spouses. It's just not. It's just, you know what? Yield to God's agenda for your life 
and let him do the work in others. And especially when it's close to home, but it's, and especially when it's in the body. You know what? The church is a hospital. We're not all doing great, fantastic, totally spiritually mature, and we got everything handled and wired and nailed down. Please. We're all broken in ways. Have agape. Love because that's how he loves. He loves these guys, and he knows that they're broken in ways. He loves you. He loves me. And he knows I'm broken. He's not making an allowance for me to be broken. He, he wants to work in my life. Don't get me wrong. But he loves us where we're at. And he loves you where you're at this morning. I call this the sideways glance. Well, what about him? I was at a Bible study in 1986. First Bible study I was at in Calvary Chapel Gridley. And the guy asked me if I would speak. And I went, oh, uh, uh. It was a home fellowship. And, and they were in this passage. I'll never forget it. And I said, well, it's kind of like the sideways glance. You just look at somebody else. Well, I don't really like what you're wanting me to do, Lord. So what about them? Stop it. Follow him yourself. That's the point. Verse 23, then this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple wouldn't die. Yet Jesus didn't say to him that uh, he would not die. But if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? So here, the Bible is not even written yet. The New Testament is not even written yet. And people are already misquoting and misinterpreting and misapplying it. There's nothing new under the sun. I mean... This just ran like wildfire through their ranks. It says the disciples. It wasn't just you know, people out there. It's no, no, no. Yeah, and, and you know, we can, we can get so bogged down in the details that we can get off on these side rows. It's like trying to figure out why there's 153 fish. doesn't matter. It's what he said to Peter about John at that time. And John would be the only disciple that didn't die. And he would see Jesus. Go to Revelation chapter 1. It says he fell at his feet as a dead man when he saw Jesus in glory. But what does it matter to you, Peter, what I do with him? You follow me. Again, he asserts a second time. You follow me. Don't get distracted. That's what he's saying. Verse 24, this is a disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. John, speaking of himself, speaking of this book, wrapping it up now for the second time. Remember I talked about at the end of verse 20, uh, I called it the soft close. I know that well. And now he's going to really close. Uh, he's saying, look, this testimony is true. He's giving, this would be the equivalent of, you know, standing in a courtroom, put your hand on the Bible and you know, repeat after me. I solemnly swear. He's giving, this he's saying, this is sworn testimony. This whole writing, this whole book, I am swearing my testimony before God. It's true. Bank on it. And we can. Because it's the word of God. Verse 25, final verse in this wonderful gospel. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that not even the books, that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And then he says, Amen. Interesting. I was looking online and um, I found a quote, a guy by the name of Tetralt. Uh, he's the overseer of the Ford Theater Foundation in Washington, D.C. And, and they have a, a library there. And he said, you know, there are over 15,000 books written about Abraham Lincoln. 
15,000. They have a stack of books in the theater that's 7,000 books. He said, the only other person in history that's had more books written about them is Jesus Christ. <laughs> and think about the volume of books that have been written. I mean, when John said, you know, even and, and that's just the things we know, not, not the things that we don't know that Jesus did. I love that John ends this book open-ended, or this, this gospel open-ended. He says, you know, I've given you what I've been compelled by the Holy Spirit to give you. I want you to be built up by this. I want you to understand this is truth. I want you to understand the purpose. The purpose of this entire gospel is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He went to that cross for you. He died. He rose on the third day, and he lives. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, what an exciting, exciting journey this has been for, for me, for this little church.